I'm Kyle Simon. And I'm Corey Astle. Welcome to Conservative Minds, the podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times, and how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ConsMinds. It's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 28, we read The Closing of the American Mind by Alan Bloom from 1987. Alan Bloom was born in 1930 in Indianapolis, Indiana, to second-generation Jewish parents who were both social workers. At the age of 15, he entered the University of Chicago, where he graduated with a bachelor's degree when he was only 18 years old. For postgraduate studies, he enrolled in the University of Chicago's Committee on Social Thought, where he studied under German-born philosopher Leo Strauss. Strauss is a thinker we explored in episode 18. The Committee on Social Thought was a unique interdisciplinary program that attracted a small number of students due to its rigorous requirements and a lack of clear employment path after graduation. Bloom earned his PhD in 1955. He subsequently studied under the influential Hegelian philosopher Alexander Kojev in Paris. Bloom also studied and taught in Paris and Germany. He returned to the United States to teach at Yale from 1960 to 1963 and then at Cornell until 1970. In 1969, a group of students took control of Cornell's administration building and demanded that certain mandatory classes be dropped in favor of those deemed more relevant to them. And is this reminiscent of several woke colleges today? I think so. After the university yielded to the students' demands, Bloom resigned from the university, and he moved to the University of Toronto. Later, he returned to the University of Chicago. In 1987, Bloom published The Closing of the American Mind, subject to today's reading. It came five years after he published a Harbinger essay on the same themes in the National Review. His book became an unexpected bestseller, especially for a, an obscure professor. It eventually sold close to half a million copies in hardback. Among Bloom's former students are prominent journalists, government officials, and political scientists, such as Francis Fukuyama, a great thinker that we explored in episodes 21 and 22. Alan Bloom died in 1992. So again, today we're reading The Closing of the American Mind. The subtitle of today's reading is How Higher Education Has Failed Democracy and Impoverished the Souls of Today's Students. This book is Bloom's critique of the contemporary American university. And he actually spends much of his time in the book discussing his views on, on the need for a great books, education focused on philosophy and humanities. And that's pretty interesting, but I think for this podcast, we'll give more attention to his warnings about the moral relativism that he saw taking over the Academy because it's just so relevant for what we're facing today. He called the movement, this movement towards uh, openness that paradoxically closes the minds of the students and creates barriers to a shared set of authentic values. Openness at the time was just really a broadside attack on all tradition or common culture stuff that we've, that we see all the time today. I mean, today you might call it tolerance or multiculturalism or, you know, social justice in general. They, he, he, he calls it openness, but he starts out by explaining how the beliefs and attitudes of incoming students had changed over as many years of teaching. I mean, he taught for many years and he just saw an, a clear attitude change with uh, incoming students. 
And also the university's objectives had changed. So he starts out by, kind of explains that it, it used to be the case that students would come in and would kind of have these shared values of, you know, rationality and industriousness and, and the values of like honesty and respect for law and dedication to family. They had been taught already this sort of, and, and inculcated this sense of the American heritage, you know, the constitution, mm-hmm. American history, you know, they were unified and kind of united in a celebration of the founding, you know, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal, you know, from Lincoln's address. But over the years, that started to change. And when he wrote this book, he was sort of at his wits end because he said, almost every student entering the university believes that truth is relative. He says they are unified only in their relativism and their allegiance to equality. Now, again, this is, he's, he's talking more about uh, students at elite colleges. So it's not necessarily the community college student, but he just saw a clear change in attitude. And to me, this just seems so timely because even though the book he'd written, he'd published it in 1987, if anything, the situation has only gotten much worse. Yeah, I, I think the rise of relativism is something we still deal with today, probably even more so. Um, and it's kind of trickled down from the academy to just the way every everyday people live and the way a lot of great ideas or bad ideas do. I think we sometimes think of the academy and, and the you know the elite academies as being apart from culture, but they they do have an influence on us. You know, just like a lot of the critical race and feminist theories that we're seeing, you know, manifested in some of the radical lefty movements of today are out of, these are faculty ideas, student ideas from the eighties and nineties that are finally bubbling through to regular folks. So I, I think, I think Bloom was mm. where he saw relativism in, in, in colleges. I think we're seeing it now everywhere. And I mean, I, I remember um, even in the nineties, Rush Limbaugh talked about that a lot. I think his book words mean things. If I'm remembering that right, mm. it was, that was a bestseller too, because he was sort of addressing something that was now folks who listen to his radio show were seeing every day. So it's sort of, you know, in the same way that we see people today saying, you know, speak your truth. You know, this, this is my truth. This, you know, was it, is it, is it true or not? You know, those of us who are yes, yeah. brought up to in the old, old fashioned way say, well, there's either truth or, or, or lie. There's either truth or fa- true or false, you know, and then, Mm-hmm. Get this sort of creeping relativism that I, I think makes makes Bloom consistently relevant today. I I also I like the way he he talked about openness, like you said, but then he uh, kind of stepped back and said, "Well, there's two kinds of openness. There's an openness of indifference, which is what he was seeing, where, where students believe that the point of education is to." You know, to learn and to to let us be whatever we want to be. You know, we're open to, and then we're open to everybody else being whatever they want to be, and that's all there is. For him, openness mm-hmm. was you know being open to new ideas was good, but as a part of the quest for knowledge and certitude that'll help us live the best lives. You know, and it's it's sort of like the like what do we do with liberty that we've talked about all this time? Is it just to do whatever you want, or is it to give you the space and freedom? you know, freedom from government coercion or from anybody else's coercion, the freedom to find your way to virtue and, and the right. Mm-hmm. I thought that I, I hadn't thought about it in, in that way, the way he separated 
you know, openness of one kind of openness or the other, but it really, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And to me, the, the dichotomy is just sort of an explanation of what the, what the messaging is, because on the one hand, as you said, like there's a, there's a positive openness, an openness to ideas and to, you know, thinking and being open to, you know, new, maybe new experiences, new ideas. And that's good. But what he's trying to say, I think is, you know, there's, there's the other side of, uh, of openness, which is how they're trying to message it. They're trying to make it sound like, yeah, who could be against openness? Who, mm-hmm. who, who could be against, you know, you know, having an open mind, do you have a closed mind, you know? Yeah. But what they're, what they're really getting at is not actually have being open to ideas, but being a hundred percent tolerant, you know, going back to Fukuyama Nietzsche, like just being uh, positioning yourself such that you can't make any j- value judgments against anybody or any of their actions or any of their behavior at all. And that's just not good. You know, I mean, there is some, you know, better ways to go about life. There are better choices that you can make. And, and one of his critiques that carries through this entire book is uh, the, the more we buy into this dogma of openness, which is again, just a radical tolerance, you know, the less that we can even say that one some ideas are just better than others. You know, some thinkers are smarter than others. You know, some are more profound. Some, some art is just better than other art. You know, mm-hmm. some, some choices in life are just better than others. But if you've, but as you follow this, you know, sort of great article of faith, this dogma of openness, uh, tolerance, multiculturalism, social justice, I mean, we're, the, the destination is really driving us towards a place where, we can't make any value judgments at all. And we've talked about this several times in other podcasts, you know, that there actually is a, that, you know, the, the nuclear family actually is the, the most effective and objectively the best, best environment for children to grow up in. And it gives them the, the best opportunities and the, and the best foot forward. But we're in a position today where we can't possibly pass judgment. We can't possibly say, Hey, look, you know, I get that there's situations and not everything's perfect and, you know, we're all trying our best, but this is the, this is the ideal that we should strive for. But when you have this, this, you know, radical dogma of, you know, everyone's way is good for them and, you know, mine's good for me, it, pre- it prevents us from actually making any objective value judgments of this is better than that. Yeah, it's, um, it's a sort of nihilism. It's just, uh, it's, you know, we don't have any unifying idea or any even attempt to find such a unifying idea. And then when he discusses the nature of America too, I think it kind of drove home for me how important it is to have ideas and to have the quest for knowledge and certainty and trying to find the best way to live. Because as he said, it's possible to become an American in a day. And they contrast that with, it is not possible to become a Frenchman in a day. You know, and these old world nations have longer histories and they have, you know, ties of, of blood and, and, and tribe and, and they arose out of, you know, ancient peoples, you know, like such that you can get your DNA tested and they'll say, yeah, you're, you know, you're a quarter French and you can tell because those people have lived in that space thousands of years and they've all, you know, married in with each other. And there's a difference in them than the Germans or the Spanish or the English. And we don't have that in America. And I think that that's usually a great thing because mm-hmm. anybody can come here 
and be American and, you know, and, and be as good as anyone who's been here for generations and, and anybody can live that American dream and achieve it and have a great life for himself here. But it, it means that if we don't have that, that blood basis as a nation, what we do have is ideas. Mm -hmm. We have this, um, you know, we're, we're a people that's bound together by thought, not by, you know, matter, not by genes. Yeah. So if we, when we, and when we all practice these ideas, these ideas of ordered liberty and, you know, and democracy and finding virtue on your own, not through government direction, you know, just the communities and, and federalism and, and, and all the things we've talked about these episodes, if we get rid of that, then we're really in a way more chaotic state than a, a European nation would be if they turned away from liberty. Because, you know, I mean, if like the Russians occupied Poland and imposed communism on them, but they were still Polish because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they all spoke Polish. They all lived in Poland and they all had Polish ancestors and, and traditions that even the communists couldn't stomp out. But what do we have? We, we've got to have this idea, this American ideal. And if we shatter that into a thousand pieces like a lot of people want to do now and so well that's one tradition but i have a different tradition but then we, what are we except a bunch of people bouncing around within these borders with nothing in common yes exactly he says that the traditional understanding was that recognized and accepted man's natural rights man found a fundamental basis of unity and sameness you know based on he says, class, race, religion, national origin, or culture all disappear when bathed in the light of natural rights, which give men common interests and make them truly brothers. This was kind of the original understanding of what it meant to be American. But and to your point, we're, we're just sorely missing that unification today. You know, what's, what's our basis of unity when even an American flag on a pair of shoes becomes controversial? You know, yeah. I, I can't wrap my head around it. He says it used to be that immigrants had to put, put behind him the claims of the old world and subordinate them to these new American principles. But, but the new, this new, uh, you know, dogma of openness or tolerance or social justice, it pays no attention at all to natural rights or, or the historical origins of, of America or American heritage, because they're not, those are now viewed as essentially flawed and regressive. He says, the study of history and culture teaches that all the world was mad in the past. Men always thought they were right, and that led to wars, persecution, slavery, xenophobia, racism, and chauvinism. So the new, the new openness is, is open to all kinds of lifestyles and all ideologies. There's no enemy other than the man who is not open to everything. And the point is not to correct mistakes and, and find what's right, you know, try to discern, you know, higher and lower quality. Rather, it's uh, just don't think you're right at all because mm -hmm. who can judge? Right? Yeah, that, that is something you hear too. Here, I mean, you, the, he puts it down in very stark terms, but it is definitely something the way you hear people talk and even the way we talk about well, the way politicians attack each other. As somebody who live, leads a dissolute lifestyle in politics, if they're on the left, they don't get criticized for it as much because they're not judging anybody else either. Right. So it's, you know, it's whatever, you know, we do what we do. It's only the people on the right who try to uphold a value, of, you know, of ordered family life, for example. Mm -hmm. And then when mm -hmm. they get caught running around, Oh, look at this hypocrite. Like that's the only thing you can't be as a hypocrite. So the solution is to have no values and to live yeah. in this kind of world that Bloom saw developing where it's just 
whatever. Everybody do what he wants. But then that raises the question, which he, he, he puts to us, and I just found very profound. When there are no shared goals or vision of the public good, is the social contract any longer possible? I think this is a real fear. I think it's a real threat. And I had a conversation almost exactly like this with a good friend of mine who's who's liberal and definitely buys into all these the, the you know social justice agenda and everything. And we were talking about the you know the Kaepernick shoes situation. And I'm just saying, if if we can't have even this you know sh- shared you know value, to, can, can we have any cohesion at all if we can't even say that? You know that the the American flag is okay. You know? Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, what what do we what do we unify behind? You know, nothing. It just becomes, you know, we're. I think right now we it just you know more and more every day we become more susceptible to our to our you know sort of evolutionary tribal instincts. You know, stick to your team and and you know before we had. Uh, a, a unifying theme uh, against, uh, you know, fighting communism or whatever. And that didn't unify the whole country, but, you know, by and large, everyone was on board. Now that's kind of like fallen by the wayside. And, and also, you know, he'll talk about too, which we've talked about many, many podcasts, the loss of faith in America. I mean, just leads people in a direction of seeking meaning through, through politics, through social justice and, and it just pits people against each other. And it doesn't really surprise me that we're at a, we're in a position now where, you know, if we can't have any shared goals, no shared vision at all of what it, what it means to be an American or what the public good, I mean, it just leaves us in this, you know, sort of wasteland of if, if I get to decide what's good for me and you get to decide what's good for you, well, I just don't like at all what you, what's good for you. And usually these, these are two diametrically opposed objectives and and Mm -hmm. so therefore it just breeds more discontent and controversy yeah he he made the point that you know it's it's good to get rid of our prejudices but then what happens when that prejudice is removed what is what replaces it Mm -hmm. i think a lot of what's happening is like okay you gotta there was some stuff in the past in the american tradition that you know we don't believe anymore slavery and segregation and things like that so get rid of that but you got to replace it with something you can't just replace it with well look those guys were really sure they were right so now we can't be sure we're right because so were they Mm -hmm. and look how bad it went like you were saying before so if we we replace if we even knock off the the bits of tradition that we now realize are wrong we got to replace them with something and you have to build up the rest of it and and you know, replace that with a, a belief in equality and colorblindness, like a, which is what they were the left at one time pushed and the right currently does. But if you replace it with nothing, then you're just you're destroying ideas, but you're not actually adding any good ideas. And that you know, it's it's still it's that atomization. So even even in getting rid of a bad idea as an organizing part of society, you have to think as you do it. Where are we moving people to? Where where is this? What's in the place of this flawed tradition? It can't be just nothing, and yet I think that is increasingly what it is. Yeah, instead the focus is just on tearing down. Yes, and then you know it animates folks on our side because I've had this conversation with several people. Like, why do you care what's going on on college campuses? It's just a bunch of kids, 
And I'm like, well, it matters to us because as he said, Bloom says, civic education is turned away from concentrating on the founding. You know, instead it's, it, we've created this, this anti-founding because hmm. the founders wish to achieve a national majority concerning fundamental rights and then prevent that majority from overturning those fundamental rights, he says. But now the protection of minorities has emerged as the central function of government. This, the, we've got this new identity movement, you know, of course he's, he's writing this in 19, you know, publishing in 1987. Its demand is for racial or group identity, not universal rights. You know, again, you know, listeners, uh, Kyle and I will, you know, of course, stipulate that, you know, we're, we're not, you know, anti-minority. We think that's great. You know, there, you know, diversity is good. Uh, the, the problem I think that I have, and I think that you have is that is when we shift the focus from our universal rights to really this Foucaultian sort of it's power that counts. He says, mm. insist on respect for the identity as the identity rather than as human beings. Simply that's just another, that's just another mode for us to, to atomize and divide and, and create more discord among ourselves rather than unifying behind what we've always been unified behind in America. You know, these, these fundamental universal rights, you know, respect for the, for individual human beings rather than respect for groups as groups. And, you know, I, and, and, I, and I'm going to throw like sort of the white, the, you know, white nationalist movement in the same bucket, you know, like, mm -hmm. is it, is it really a big shocker that, uh, that, you know, some certain contingent after being told over and over again, you know, you're the dominant group and you suck and we're going to try to pull you down that, that some of them might stand up and say, Hey, wait a second. No, I'm the better. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and 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 then create sort of their own uh, counterproductive and you know negative group of their own. Yeah, the, the alt, I think that's the result. Yeah, the alt right is a completely predictable. The white nationalist alt right is a completely predictable result of that group dynamic coming from the other side. So if you're if everyone's going off in this group and demanding rights for his group, what's left? The group that that's left is how can they you know some of them not say well what if, yeah I'm going to get mine. Mm -hmm. And that's, it shows us how group rights can never unite a people. All they can ever do is divide us. Yeah, Whereas, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's the, the idea that if there were flaws in the way individual rights were applied, and if there were people left out of those rights, the solution is, is to include them and as, as individuals, not to say that the whole idea of natural rights is flawed. Because I, th I think we have never seen a better system than recognizing natural rights and individual rights any any system where your rights are entrusted to the government or to a, a group inevitably in every country it ends in it ends in gulags and work camps and, and executions and slavery there's no, there's nothing to, that can replace individual rights mm -hmm. and and if i think we don't hear that enough i think that's maybe they weren't hearing it in colleges in 87 now we're not hearing it even anywhere in the public sphere that, you know, life, liberty, property, these are, it's not just about wanting to keep what's mine. It's really about that. If we don't have these things and no society can, can exist, no society can be free. It's always going to revert to just domination by a small elite. Yes. And he, he makes that exact point. He says in terms of like, why, why don't we ever talk about these things? Why is it not discussed? Why is not civics education, you know, a, a major part of 
of the school system. He says, much of the intellectual machinery of 20th century political thought and social science was constructed for making an assault on the dominant majority. Guess what? That is in full swing. I, I read tons of social science. You know, there's plenty of podcasts out there too that I listen to. I would say 98 out of 100 of these is focused. Seriously, it's unbelievable. It's really jaw-dropping how much is just focused ex- almost exclusively on on uh, identity group stuff, you know? Yep. A lot of it is sort of guided by Marxist thought, which of course we, you and I both agree is out to lunch, but, but uh, it's, it's really crazy that, you know, the brightest and the best, let's say of our, of the Academy, all they want to do is tear down the, make an assault on the dominant majority. And, and again, you know, some people are going to respond and say, I don't suck. You suck. You know, mm-hmm. He says, uh, Bloom says, openness is designed for outgroups to wrest control from the dominant majority. You know, that's exactly what social justice is. And let's not think for one second that people are not going mean, yeah. to. I mean, what, wouldn't it be better to say you, the dominant majority, have been talking about these ideals, you know, these these ideas that all men are created equal, that we all have natural rights. Maybe you should focus more on sharing them with everybody else and including everyone else in that picture. That's, I mean, that's what Lincoln said in the Gettysburg Address when he was saying that, yeah. talking about the ideals in the Declaration and then the state that existed, you know, that where half the country was keeping slaves still, saying, let's, we don't need to blow up the country. We don't need to remake our ideas. Let's just apply them. Let's just recognize that a person is a person. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's such such an obvious concept, I think. It's hard, it's hard. But then you, you do see this, and I think it's this. We talked about this with I think when we were discussing Thomas Sowell's book, is that people who see a bad result from a system, like the results Lincoln was dealing with, and we still to some extent deal with today, think, well, the system must be rotten. It must be made in bad faith. Let's tear it down. Mm-hmm. And that just seems so unthinking. It's just it's just angry. You know, yeah. it's okay to be angry when you see injustice, but, but there's gotta be more to a political philosophy than anger. Cause then you have to say, all right, well, all right, now we're good and mad. Well, what do we do about it? And uh, their solutions have, as Bloom points out, not really built anything positive up in its place. They've just been destroying and atomizing and, and grinding us down into uh, unthinking you know, people just floating around here. Yeah. Pure, pure teardown mode. And and I think mm-hmm. you and I, certainly I would agree with a number of the overall objectives, you know, let's, let's, let's create more, yeah, a more just society. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just that this, this method of tearing down, I mean, it, what does it leave in its wake? Well, it leaves carnage in its wake and it's, it's, it's not pretty. And I think, you know, in this day and age, that's exactly what we're seeing too, is the, the division, the, the anger, the vitriol, you know, directed towards one another. It's just, it's not healthy. It's not good. It's not good for the Republic. Nope. <laughs> so he talks about ethnocentrism, which is, which is another, you know, ar- article of, of, of dogma. He's, he's basically calling this like the great crime of preferring your own team and you know ethnocentrism i mean that that can be incredibly damaging but he says 
If students were really to learn something of the minds of non-Western cultures, they would find out that every one of these cultures is ethnocentric. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I just think that's self-evident. I mean, you know, in Japan, they basically will not take any immigrants at all. Yeah. I mean, you, you can be a part-time worker. And they've, in, and they've got know. people living there for generations who are not Japanese and are still considered, you know, outsider. You know, exactly. And in France, like, you know, there's obviously Muslims or other ethnic minorities there, but they're not French, right? You know, it's, mm-hmm. if, if the French are French and if you're not from France and you're not, you know, and I think the left loves to use Europe as an example for so many things, but somehow this one is never used like, Oh, but actually they, they have pretty solid cultures and, and they take, they take pride in the fact that, you know, they're French or, or, you know, they're uh, Korean, but he says uh, the reason for the ethnocentrism is clear. And this is basically like sort of our evolved monkey brain men, men must love and be loyal to their families and peoples to preserve them. A father must prefer his child to other children. I mean, duh. Mm -hmm. The problem getting along with outsiders is secondary to having an inside, a people, a culture, a way of life. Uh, This is just an empirical fact about about our involved human nature. Now, I think that we should definitely tame that, and I'll bet you'd agree. That's not the argument we're trying to make here. All we're saying is it's natural for people to prefer their own team, and I guess what I would hope I mean, what I would advocate is that we be team America, you know, yeah. not, not, you know, not team black, team white, team queer, you know, and like, let's be team America and, <laughs> and be unified together. I mean, as if we were watching the, you know, the women's soccer team, you know, there's a lot of things that, that some of those players say in their private time that I don't particularly love, uh, but I'll root for them, you know, to the death because, you know, that's our team that, you know, that's yep. our side and it's just natural. Yeah. They're wearing our colors. I mean, they represent us and that's, I feel the same way. It, it, it's, I think it's part of also what people were dealing with in 2016 when some of these critical theories were really bubbling up in the democratic party. And a lot of people who were once Democrats looked at Trump and said, you know, whatever else is going on with him. And there's a lot going on. He stands up for America. Sometimes he does it in a way that I particularly don't like, but he's, he's at least, he recognizes what team he's on. Yeah. And I think that, you know, a lot of his inaugural address, which was, you know, um, weird as George W. Bush said, it, it, it's still, uh, it was about that the American president should represent the American people, you know, Mm -hmm. in our dealings with foreign nations, I think part of our, it's a good part of our nature that we're so broad-minded that when we win a war or win the cold war, we want to, you know, let the enemy up easy, you know, rebuild them. Say, all right, if you're going to behave, we're going to be friends. You know, we're going to rebuild Europe and Japan. We're going to, we're going to open our, you know, open our trade to Russia and China after the cold war. And we're going to, you know, all be friends together, but sometimes you've got to stand up for America because those other nations are standing up for their people. Mm-hmm. I think that was, something that was an undercurrent in 2016 and will be again in 2020. And it's, um, and you don't have to, this isn't necessarily a right wing belief standing up for America. The left used to do it too. So, I mean, there's no reason a Democrat couldn't make those same points, but, uh, they're not, they're, they're really more wrapped up in what idiots on the internet are saying about, 
how everything in our past is wrong and we need to rend our garments and, you know, turn ourselves inside out trying to apologize for stuff people did hundreds of years ago. And instead of saying, all right, well, some stuff was bad. Let's get together now and make it right. Let's and move forward as a united people. Yeah, exactly. So his, his entire, you know, part one, first chapter is basically going through, you know, what he's, he thinks, you know, schools used to teach and what students should learn now, but don't re- related to American heritage, as we've talked about, and also tradition. He says with the information explosion, this is 1987, remember, not even, you know, <laughs> right. the internet hadn't even been invented. With the information explosion, tradition has become superfluous. As soon as tradition has come to be recognized as tradition, it's dead. It becomes the enemy, right? I mean, it's it's traditional to have a parade, a community parade on July 4th. So let's just kill it. Let's attack it. Mm-hmm. Let's tear it down, you know? And he was Jewish, but he talks quite a bit about the Bible as as uh, acting as the common culture that united people from all walks of America, he says. But, uh, you know, the idea of such a total book and the possibility of world explanation, he says, is just disappearing. In other words, like, even if you don't believe in, didn't believe in the Bible, and my guess is he didn't, I mean, being, I mean, I guess, you know, believe in the the Old, Old Testament or whatever, but, um, or, or not, he, I mean, I don't even know if he was an atheist. But the the point that he's trying to make here is that we used to have this wellspring of sort of, you know, shared vision, shared values. And a big part of that was these American values that we've been talking about, you know, universal rights and, and the human dignity. And, and, uh, but, in, and, but that also included these other traditions of, um, the Bible of, you know, that, that's created a common culture. Even if you didn't believe in the religion, at least it, it united people in, uh, in our approach to the world and, what uh, what we should value as you know authentically and and you know brought us together and he he'll add some of the great great works which is part of his big argument is uh, for a great book's education because he says without the great revelations the great epics and philosophies as part of our natural vision there's nothing to see out there and eventually little is left inside Moral education within the family cannot exist if it cannot present the young a vision of the moral cosmos and the rewards and punishment of good and evil. I mean, he, what he's saying basically is like, what do we teach our kids if everything is okay, everything's permitted, you know, what you do is good for you and what I do is good for me, and there is no hierarchy, there is no tiering of good, better, best. Mm-hmm. Instead, it's just all fine. Everything is good. And I think he, he I kind of comes back to his earlier point too about all right so we're if we're not teaching this people are still going to look for that universal explanation that's something we we heard hayek talk about and others in previous episodes people are going to turn to something like socialism because it explains the world you know you know its answer may be wrong as you and i understand it but it's if you didn't grow up with any answer you hear this this guy on a street corner or a blog or whatever, shouting about Marx, you're going to say, well, that guy knows what's going on. He knows how it all works. And the same could be said for fascism. The same could be said for any sort of religious cult that springs up around some charismatic leader. Right, exactly. He, he talks a lot about Freud in here as sort of trying to replace God with psychoanalysis. I don't know. That was... It, it's something... I mean, we do, you do hear people talk about psychology as though it explains the world, too. 
So it, we're all, we're, men want gods. And if we don't have the real one, we're going to make fake ones. Yep. Like the golden calf, you know, and people are going to, because people want to worship something. They want answers. They want a, a solution. They want a, a system of the world that they can understand. And more, like you were saying, Bloom looks at how we used to at least be generally united around, you know, the Christian scriptures, you know, whatever different sect you happen to belong to, you were all basically into this book. Uh, yeah, now it's another thing that's just we're scattered and we're still looking for answers, but now we're finding them in all different weird places. Mm-hmm. And it's been replaced, as he says, by, he calls it a vain attempt to give children values. And he, he basically defines values as, they're always liberal values, you know, these, this morally bankrupt uh, openness, uh, you know, social justice. And he says such education in schools is little more than propaganda. And such values will inevitably change as public opinion changes too. I mean, there's no, there's just, do we have no enduring, you know, common values and culture? So he, he says for his remedies, he turns to culture. And this is really reminiscent of our conversation about, you know, Sorab Amari and David French, like the battle that they had. French came down basically on the same lines of what we need is to improve the culture and Bloom call, describes it as culture was a way of preserving something like religion while attempting to hide the sharp distinction between region, uh, reason and religion. This is kind of a, a quotation of, of Nietzsche. But if we don't have, you know, this sort of this, sh- you know, sh- shared American culture, if we are or, or sh- shared American heritage and, and uh, we are stepping completely away from religion as well. And we have this disenchantment. Well, we still need, we still need a culture that, that can, that provides room for, you know, good and evil that makes it possible for men to live and act. He says, I mean, now how do you actually change that? He doesn't really get into how, how to improve culture and change right. it. I guess that's the million dollar question. And again, that's what, that's, that's the hard part. That's where Amari and, and French really argued is how do you do that? Do you do it? I mean, Amari wanted to do it through compulsion. French said, let's just keep making the, making the argument about uh, universal you know, rights and values and that sort of thing. But I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. And I could, that's, it's frustrating because, you know, we've been making the argument and losing it. It's easy to, in frustration, turn to that sort of, well, the government should make you. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think everyone feels that at some point when they, when they see good ideas, losing to bad ones, they say, well, I should, we'll just make them agree. You know, that's, that never works. Yeah. I mean, every, and in some ways it turns people off too. It's like, well, if they're forcing me to believe it, it must not be a good idea that can win on its own. There must be something, there must be some malign purpose that somebody's getting something out of this. So yeah, like a lot of books we've read, they, I think Bloom's getting at some important questions and the answers are still things to be worked out. Yeah. So, but that doesn't mean there's nothing out there. I don't think because, you know, uh, no. in, in 1987, we were having this, this, uh, well, the sixties, seventies, eighties, you know, just a bulldozer on against, uh, you know, tradition and shared vision and replacing it with the openness and what he calls lifestyles. Lifestyle justifies any way of life, you know, um, and now lifestyles are accorded rights. So defense of them is a moral cause, you know, justifying the sweet passions of indignation at the violators 
you know, that's of course the, the case, but, but now you know, like social science, which again, he made the point that, you know, the overwhelming majority, the vast majority, overwhelming majority of, uh, social sciences focused on, you know, taking down the, the dominant, um, majority in traditions. But now like the data's come in and it looks like it is better to have a nuclear family. You know, it, it, it looks like it is actually, mm-hmm. it is better to be married than not married. You know, it actually, you know, it's, it's better for, you know, for kids to, to, you know, there, there just really are some ways of living that are preferable to others. There is a good, better, best. And to me, that's, that's a great place to start on, you know, getting back to the road of a better hierarchy and, and, you know, shared values like industry work hard, you know, (laughs) you Mm -hmm. can do it. Not not, rather than saying like, Oh no, you're, you're, you are basically the, the, the sum total of your environment. And so, you know, you're, we, we basically view you as a lost cause and instead we're just going to celebrate your lack of achievement instead. Let's say, no, you can too. There's this value of industriousness, you know, get up and do it. You can, you know, type of thing. And that's, that's something we talked about in the Charles Murray episode too, is that the upper middle class already realizes this and is doing it themselves. Yep. We just need the courage to tell other people. And then that courage is needed because it goes against this trend that Bloom discusses here of everyone of I'm okay, you're okay. And how dare you judge me? And you know, what gives you the right? But I think we all have the right to uh, promote good ideas. That's why we talk to each other. I mean, if you're just, why are we, why are we even having conversations if there's no right answer? Mm-hmm, right. You know, if we're, then we're just, uh, here's what I think. Well, here's what I think. Okay. We're just wasting our breath. If, if the point of the point of conversation is, you know, to all, I mean, if you're just talking about something that there is no right answer to, what's your favorite color? You know, okay, sure. That's it. You're just sharing preferences. You know, who's your favorite baseball player? But for, if we're talking about ideas, we're talking about how to live. We must be doing so to drive at, to drive toward the right answer to try and find it out. And that's the, the sort of good openness he talked about of being open to new ideas in order to find the right. So a lot of people are living the right life. And they're just, they just don't have the gumption to tell everyone else, look at this. It works pretty great. Yeah. You yeah. can, you can do it too. Yeah. That, the, the baseball player analogy, that's, that's a great insight because you're just talking about a, a completely subjective conversation of, you know, yeah. who, who is the best quarterback in, in NFL history? Well, that's just purely a, a, a matter of subjective preference. And if that's all you know, life is too, is that everything is just a matter of subjective preference rather than there is, you know, good, better, best. Well, I think we're in trouble. (laughs) I think we're in deep trouble. All right. We come to the end. So what's your closing thoughts? Well, I I just sort of to to sum it up is he's bloom is right. that relativism has been taking over. I think he started thinking about The, uh, the triumph of relativism is beginning in maybe the thirties and by his time it was well on its way. And by our time it's, it is everywhere. I mean, these ideas mm-hmm. have trickled down to all sorts of folks who never really are going to read a philosophy book, but the ideas are, st- they, the ideas still get out there. I mean, we, and through mass media or whatever. So I think Bloom is saying like a lot of conservatives we've read 
you have to stand for something that many of the old ideas are best. And I think just what I was saying before, people are proving that in social science and they're proving it in the way they live, you know, anecdotally. So I think if we're going to take anything from, from Bloom is it, okay, you've proved that. Tell everyone, mm-hmm. live it, promote it, you reunify this country around it. I think that, that that's a big takeaway for me. What about you? Right. Now, I really, I actually really enjoyed this book and it really has pulled together some threads for me because if we've seen any sort of consistent pattern, it's with these conservative philosophers, whether it be Richard Weaver or Leo Strauss, now Alan Bloom, they're pretty much pinpointing the same thing, which is this relativism and complete loss of, of higher values and, and a higher order ordering of what's good um, and what's less good or what's bad, good and evil. And it's amazing that, you know, these conversations were happening in the forties and the fifties and the sixties. Now in the eighties, it starts to pick up steam, as you said, and now it's just full blown, you know, part of our society. So, you know, Richard Reber is right. I, ideas do matter and, and they do have consequences and, and we're seeing some of the social carnage of, of some of these ideas. But what's also changed from from Weaver to now, and even since since Bloom wrote this book, is we actually have some of the social science research come in. You know, the Charles Murray stuff, or the Ross Douthat and Raihan Salam that we read last week. That actually some of this is bearing out in the data that you know not every lifestyle is equal to every other lifestyle. You know, not every life decision and choice is as good as another. Anyway, I enjoyed this. For next time, we're going to read a book called From Cottage to Workstation by Alan Carlson, published in 1993. This is a, a, a good, solid look at, uh, at the family and value of the family, something that's a little different than we, what we've read before. So hopefully you can join us then. Thanks.